0: What have different authors brought to the role of President of the New Zealand Society of Authors? And why, knowing the challenges which might lie ahead, would a writer step up to the task? I'm Karen Hay and this is the New Zealand Society of Authors Oral History Podcast where we dive deep into the archives to hear New Zealand authors tell their story of living as a writer in Aotearoa. New Zealand poet and fiction writer Kevin Ireland has been honoured for his services to literature in New Zealand, receiving an OBE and a Prime Minister's Award. Along with his writing, one of the ways Kevin advanced New Zealand literature was by spending two years as the president of Penn New Zealand. In June 2000, Kevin talked to Michael King about his time as president, starting with all the reasons he wasn't going to do the job.
1: Well, I was a very reluctant president because... I knew that it would be, that I'd need to do it for two years and I knew that there would be a huge commitment in time, that there, I wouldn't get a lot of writing done that in other words I was going to be more or less uh, uh, in my spare time, I was going to be a completely full-time spare time <laughs> uh, president and it uh, and it alarmed me and the person who really talked me into it was John Craner. And I remember coming back from Wellington uh, after a particularly appalling meeting of what was then called the Executive Council, I think. Um, And there there were two councils, a two-tiered arrangement. It was a bit like the Presidium of uh, of the USSR and the thing had been thought up I think by uh, people who had uh, who were connected or had been at some time connected I think with communist politics in New Zealand so that you know you had this, uh, the, the branches operating as cells and then you had this enormous superstructure the uh, Presidium which which ran events in Penn and it was Wellington uh, operated so it became, in fact, a Wellington super branch, and of course the m- main population of writers was outside Wellington, <laughs> and uh, uh, and of course it was a, an anomaly. It was always defended on the grounds that, of course, it was the cheapest way to 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 do it, and of course that had a certain sense. It yes. Had
2: a sense when the Arts Council was not prepared to put out any money for travel. That's right. That we, we, we were almost. Yes. Obliged to do it that way until suddenly yes. there was money to bring people because you could never have right. on subscriptions.
1: No, we couldn't have. It's quite true. Uh, it meant using our, our resources uh, differently but it also meant bumping up the membership so that we did have enough money to uh, to fall back on. And when I took over, I think there were 200 and something or another members and we had about three times that uh, when I left and it was a really very important thing our, our plans uh, to, to get on. I'd also seen, you see, another reason why I was re- reluctant was that um, uh, Maurice Shadbolt had made such a shambles of the presidency. Uh, he would have been, I suppose, the most disastrous choice we could have made. Now, I remember Morris from the old Socialist Club at, in university days in 1951, you know he he threw his heart and soul into uh, socialist politics and he was a good uh, organizer or he seemed to be a good organizer of course I didn't realize that he only appeared to be because of course of the chaos of student politics <laughs> and so anybody who did anything looked as though they were a capable organizer but the real test for Morris was really the, was the presidency and of course he was, uh, he was totally incompetent uh, and when the going got hot over the London flat issue, of course the first thing he did was bail out. <laughs> Eminently predictable. Uh, and of course he he thought that the job was simply another accolade, uh, another medal to pin to his chest. And of course uh, I <laughs> could see that the damned thing wasn't at all a medal uh, on your chest, it was a bloody albatross. And so, uh, I, I was very reluctant to do it. But we had this shambles of a meeting. Uh, and it was run by a pedant uh, in Wellington. I've forgotten his name now. Oh, Waddington. Waddington. Yes. Waddington, that's right. Professor of Russian at the yes, time. That's right. One, and of the,
2: one of the oddest activists we ever acquired.
1: Extraordinary. Yes. Uh, and although he was motivated by a desire to see things run properly, he actually... <laughs> Uh, was uh, the worst impediment I've ever seen in uh, operating in a chair. At least Morris had the grace to be bumbling and didn't know what the hell was going on, but Waddington knew what was going on all right and was uh, into control in a very big way. And it was a violent, bitter meeting with absolutely no need to. Uh, Waddington would jump down people's throats and shut them up and and, uh, he had this terribly hit of department a way of running a a meeting and I thought uh, coming up well this guy had taken over from Morris and had stood in which was very noble of him but uh, that he was going to be a disaster because he would get everyone's backs up and in any case uh, I think uh, John Craner persuaded me after a couple of drinks that we needed a writer to be the president and that Waddington uh, was a writer in the sense that uh, he did a bit of, you know, Sunday writing and that he had published. Really. That's right. He yeah. had translated and, uh, and so on, all of which is very worthy uh, writing and so on. I wouldn't put it down, but that, that we needed actually somebody with a bit more profile uh, as a writer. And that's what I really mean. Uh, I wouldn't put down anybody who was doing any other kind of essay writing or editing or anything else like that. It's all part of uh, the function but we needed a bit of profile so I thought about it
2: and well, also they have somebody there whose livelihood was actually dependent on writing I mean I think that.
1: oh yes absolutely quite right
2: because then you understand yeah. the need of that section of the membership
1: yes well I, I got an invitation you see to, to go over to uh, Toronto to the marvellous festival writing festival they had there harborside festival and uh, where you stayed in utter luxury and uh, and and so I w- went off there and I thought oh while I'm away it'll all go away but John Crano a, was a very very good operator and I thought would have made a very fine future president of the organization but uh, he's sim- since dropped out as people do burn themselves up a bit and so I went over to this marvelous festival and had a really good time and while I did of course the time for putting in uh, candidacy uh, had elapsed. And Waddington seized on this marvelously. However, I was very relieved. I thought, well, that gets me out of doing it. The six weeks have gone. And uh, Craner got onto the phone and spoke to Waddington, who pointed out that uh, it was inside the six weeks, so it was outside the constitution and all that. And Krenner, I must say, uh, uh, from from the account he gave me, must have burnt him up because the next thing is my nomination was allowed to go forward, and I won the uh, the thing. I think uh, largely because Auckland branch members uh, realised that that we had to do something to break up this uh, to break up this monolithic. Uh, organization it simply needed trimming down now the the only thing I said to Crano and to several other people at the time was that all right we we I'll do it but we will have to change the Constitution the next, within a year we're, we're going to have to tear up this crazy uh, document uh, the the Constitution and write another one and this time uh, the power must lie in the branches because the, the, it's just too difficult to have an organization out there. You have a very slim, stripped-down uh, uh, central organization which simply represents the branch representatives. You have two elected uh, vice presidents and one president, and then you have the branch chairs. Now, that means that at any time, uh, your, the branches can get together and vote down your uh, national uh representatives and uh, and i thought right that's that sets the balance right and also it means cheaper fares it means people can get to uh to to wellington where they've usually been held or to the wherever the agm is held and so it's worked out really extremely well and not expensively for the organization and i'm very very proud of the organization i wouldn't say say uh, that's the organization of the constitution i wouldn't say it's perfect by any means but it's been a bloody good one it's it's gone now for the best part of 10 years it's worked out to be a good place where where the the branches can go and debate things with somebody chairing the meeting and a couple of extras there who are there as really prestigious writers who are there for their wisdom and expertise and all the rest of it you see and it's it's just trim and it works and those meetings have ever since uh, lacked the enmity that there used to be, uh, the ill feeling, uh, and people come away from them feeling that, you, that they've been able to do some practical good. Whereas I can remember coming away from, from that last meeting, the, the Waddington one, I think there was something like 17 people at it in a windowless bunker in the National Library <laughs> in Molesworth Street. And coming away from it feeling ill, I thought I had Legionnaire's disease. I thought something in the place had got into my system. I actually felt physically ill after that meeting. And, And I thought, you know, I don't need to do this. You know, that's, I, I'm not go- going to do that. You know, the next bloody thing is the KGB will take me outside and shoot me. You know, that's, uh, God knows, you know, it was didn't surprise me that it was a professor of Russian running out of there. That's a terrible bloody uh, OGPU organization. So anyway, we, we liberated uh, the thing. And I, if there's one thing in my life that I'm proud of, I think it's uh, uh, that feeling of being one of the people instrumental in liberating Penn from itself. Uh, It took a lot of doing because at the same time, uh, we had a kind of another movement from outside, which came from Palmerston North, strangely enough. And there was a fellow there called Drummond. We called him Bulldog, of course.
2: (laughs) (laughs) And,
1: uh, And he was, he got his teeth into the organization and he was determined that he was going to run it uh... he became friends with Alistair Patterson and uh... that also made it inevitable that i was going to stand for uh... for presidency because it was essential at the time that that we uh... diverted uh... <laughs> bulldog away from the organization or the organization away from him it was uh... it was pretty touch and go he had a, a conference at Bulls about 18... Eight or 89 i think wasn't it? Yeah. and. Uh, it was a pretty hair-raising experience because i realized as anyone with half a clue could have realized that what this guy was doing was taking the organization over here was an organza- organization right he could see that it was uh, falling over itself constitutionally and what had been worked out as simply a kind of a a big democratic uh, super branch idea had turned into this monolithic and concrete thing with factions in there fighting each other and of course it was a total disaster there are all sorts of people at these uh, super branch meetings of the national executive who shouldn't have been there for instance they had the uh, ex-president last year's president and uh, you know uh, why you know you 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 have a president why do you have last year's one and I remember uh, uh, Rosemary Wildblood saying oh they're there for their expertise and wisdom I said, bugger their expertise and wisdom. I said, they've been got rid of. <laughs> well, actually, the other people have got their expertise and wisdom. That's why they've been elected by their branches and why they will be elected by, by uh, a national ballot. But they're, they're certainly, uh, you, you, you don't have the ghost of executives past there looking like Banquo over the back of, uh, of the president there. They
2: simply don't have a mandate anymore,
1: it's a crazy thing. I said they're not elected. They're not there. I said, you know, you might as well have the ghosts of presidents pass forever. Why just last year? Yeah. It's just a, a crazy thing. Anyway, the uh, the the thing was, was poo-pooed and, uh, and uh, they disappeared. But Drummond, was a, he was a, a very sinister person <laughs> uh, is the way I'd describe him. The poor fellow's dead now, so I suppose, you know, I can talk. Of him freely, um, I mean him no ill or his widow no ill. Well, uh, Drummond could see that here was an organization that was badly in need of redirection. It was badly in need of sorting out again.
2: Ron Briley, he was doing a Ron Briley.
1: A Ron Briley, yeah. exactly, and it was a takeover, yeah. and it was going to be, <laughs> he was going to, I'm sure have himself elected president for life <laughs> pretty well he was going to take it over and he could see it was an organization in, through which you could uh, someone who was willing to devote a great deal of time to and energy to could get prestige and probably a job for life you know it was it was going to be his little baby and you could see that he was making this uh, attack at it and of course it was pen was absolutely right for taking over everybody had lost energy over the thing there were constant uh, fights and feuds Uh, there was ill feeling and we weren't working effectively as a lobby and so uh, Drummond made his play from one side and uh, the academics in, in, in Wellington made theirs and it was at a time when I think others in the organization were thinking about a book council and getting out of it altogether and just having an organisation devoted to books, which Fiona Kidman and, and, um, and other people uh, did interest themselves in. So it was a disastrous kind of uh, crossroads. I think at Auckland meetings we discussed the matter and it became very obvious that really all it needed was a new constitution. Uh, okay. Provided we got the thing working, it, it would be okay. And so that's really the very long answer as
2: to why
1: I eventually thought bugger it all I'll do it for two years and then no more.
2: Constitution aside what were the big issues over those two year period what were the things that mattered?
1: Well the first one to get out of the way was the London flat
2: affair and
1: I thought the best way of
2: doing that was
1: to ignore it uh it, it was it had all Every aspect of one of those things that would be go go down in folk memory, <laughs> and that it would haunt us all forever. It still haunts us. You know, people still bring up the the, the London flat e- episode, and uh, and that had to be got rid of simply by carrying on uh, uh, as though it was of uh, no importance because. Really, in the life of the organisation, it had no importance. It was a, it was a little adventure. It yeah. was a side issue.
2: But it was also a way of measuring how dysfunctional the organisation was at that time. It
1: was symptomatic of yeah. the whole organisation. Yeah. People just went off and did various things without having any uh, uh, recourse to yeah. their branches or to the national president and so on. So, yes, we got a really trimmed down organisation. The, the thing was, the main thing then was to get Harmony back and of course it was very easy to get harmony back because they had very good people all these branch people's uh, people came along and and they were enthusiastic and once they found that meetings were there to get uh, things done and to become an effective lobby again then uh, uh, they did i wanted uh, sponsorship that was a very difficult issue Uh, but really i think it was constitutional matters and living down the the london affair increasing Membership—that was a big membership drive. uh, Making ourselves look trim, functional, uh, making ourselves look as though we had basic unity. You see, the thing about writers is that we're all uh, uh, at each other's throats or at each other's backs, I suppose, with knives (laughs) uh, for part of the time. And there are rivalries, there are intense jealousies, um, and uh, there are hatreds and all the rest of it. But when we do come together now uh, we are a very effective lobby group because we can sink those differences because we know we do get a raw deal in the arts uh... and we're articulate and we function bloody well when we've got our heads da- down and we're directed uh... in the right direction where we're going off flying off in all directions and sure when uh, when old baldy went off and uh, got this London <laughs> flat thing i remember him coming back where i was uh, graham lay and i were just getting ready for a meeting of the sidison trust and uh and that was when uh, baldy was a member and we uh we were uh, standing at the window and he came charging along gave us a wave from outside and he came in and he said look what i've just done you know and he said i've bought this flat i've bought this flat in bloomsbury and he said i've Michael Bassett has sent me off. I've been this kind of, uh, well, I said to him, a kind of ambassador. And he said, well, I suppose you could put it like that. <laughs> and I said, oh, my God. <laughs> and, uh, and, and then he, he showed us the pictures of this thing in Bloomsbury. And he went away to get himself a drink. And I turned around <laughs> to Graham Land. I said, shit. I said, we've just heard the bomb go off. I said, wait till the, bloody e- the echoes of it come back. I said this is going to be just this is going to be an almighty ball." he must be crazy he must be off his mind if he thinks he's going to get away with this it is he's just thro- lobbed a bomb into the middle of the organization as uh, so it was uh, it actually had its hilarious side uh, an indication of how bad things had got i don't think it could happen now <laughs> But those, all those things needed doing. But most of all, I think, think we just needed getting back on the bloody rails again. Yeah. And and when I handed that that organisation over at the end of the time, I felt bloody proud. Actually, it's one of the few times in my life I've ever been proud. <laughs> I, I felt really pleased with with uh, with the way things were. I hadn't uh, had any run-ins with anyone. Uh, badly apart from Alistair Patterson as usual or Michael Morrissey at branch meetings uh, but even they had become subdued and we we had uh, just a, a lot more fun at meetings there was pleasure and we actually developed a lot of relationships around New Zealand which had never been bothered to be uh, cemented uh, before we 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 had we laid a bloody good foundation, and it's still operating now. There's a a good feeling around the branches. Since then, you know, they've they've chosen well. They've they've been really good. People, even like uh, you know Tessa Duda, you know, who's very bossy and so on. <laughs> She's been really terrific, really uh, uh, thrown her her, um, her her weight in behind the uh, the the thing, and uh, and and been so effective, and it. The thing i'm proudest of really is that the organization allows people like that to be effective if you hear all that snuffling and snorting it's not michael king it's my
2: dog <laughs> actually it's the interviewee <laughs> now, other other issues that you can remember in engaging the organization at that time
1: oh i've i'm i can't really just offhand i there must be dozens and dozens of them i i I simply remember that the phone never stopped ringing, letters poured in, meetings kept on, uh, you know, happening, but that everything flowed. And we were very lucky, actually, because Jenny Jones, who had been our um, executive secretary, uh, had actually um, been uh, hampered, I think, by the kind of uh, position she had been in. In the old Executive, she actually had a vote as well, instead of just being a, a secretary. And uh, one of the constitutional changes we made was to simply have her there as the um, as the servant of the meeting and uh, and the person who had a continuity and a kind of a, a memory uh, to help people at the at the meetings um, and could give advice and so on. But uh, but did not interfere with the principle that branches ruled and uh, and so she was allowed to flourish and not be expected to uh, to give a lead but to but to help and so you know Is that her role became very defined
2: isn't it, uh, in every other organization that works you, you do have to separate policy from administration you get into tremendous difficulties where those two um, you're lines so right are
1: blurred. you're yeah. so right and and that helped her yeah. And it helped the organization. That, that was a, a terrific thing. But really the uh, the branches uh, uh, flourished. Wellington didn't, of course, because Wellington had taken a knock, really, through the, the whole thing. But uh, in a way, I suppose, it, it, uh, so many people diverted their energies into the Book Council. And, of course, there's the Poetry I think Society. there.
2: Wellington had also burned itself out in yeah. like all the potential people. Yes. Had already done their stint as part of the Wellington-based organisation, yes. and quite simply didn't have the stamina to do it again. You You're know. quite People right. Like Fiona and Co, you know.
1: Yes, that's right. They'd bent out, and yourself yeah. when you were in Wellington, and so on. They, you'd you'd actually done your bit, and uh, and kept things going. And uh, and I don't think that anybody quite realised at the time just uh, how. Uh, much of an obstacle the constitution was becoming it uh, I think it was possible for nineteen <coughs> people to be at those meetings well you can 't have a meeting of writers with nineteen people it 's a branch uh you 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 just never get anywhere at all and i I remember at the Bulls meeting that people had to be begged to to fill the places you know filling the nineteen places was a real problem and uh,
2: um, now, apart then from, you mentioned Jenny and her important role. Yeah. Were there other people on the National Council over your time that you particularly remember for, 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 for their usefulness and their helpfulness?
1: Ah, yes. Uh, John Craner was uh, was enormously useful. Lindley Hood was terrifically useful as well. But everybody really, uh, uh, you know, came. Renee was, uh, Renee Taylor was, uh, was remarkably good. Uh, all these people had... Uh, uh, viewpoints and whatever kind of writing they did, they they were actually there representing their branches and uh, and a kind of uh, a, a, a literary good. They they didn't have um, you know their sectional or private interests uh, and they functioned bloody well. Jane Westaway did uh, very well as as well. Um, she was from the from the Wellington branch and. Uh, it, it was, ter- it really was terrific, for a start, it was uh, very funny. I remember one, one day, we, we our last moment, I think, of, of, uh, of disastrous rivalry there was, I think uh, Baldy was initially one of the vice chairs, and it's uh, one of the, it must have been one of the first meetings, or perhaps it was one of the last of the old, executive uh i've forgotten which now but john Craner had turned up to this uh, to this meeting and had particularly upset carl and there'd been a a terrible spat across the table and afterwards i could see carl being totally ostracized by everyone they'd thought he'd been correctly rude and uh and uh and, and and hostile in a in an overbearing way. This only Carl can be, and uh, and so you know I thought, oh well, I'm not going to let this happen. So I went and sat beside him and said, uh, oh Carl, we've got to you know sort a few of these things out. Let's do that. And he said, all right then, I will. But that bastard Craner, he said. Yes, I said. oh, You know, you kind of pacify he says i don't know what it is about him he said but every time i look at him i feel like jumping up out of my chair and rushing around and bashing him
2: <laughs> oh no oh god you know you know the, the origin, <laughs> you know the origin of that
1: what's the that origin
2: when carl finished his stint as auckland chair of him yeah. yeah. he wanted mike johnson to succeed him and nominated him the rest that's of the thought that my decent yes. guy in all sorts of ways and a good yes, writer but fine. would be a disaster representing the, yep. the, the branch yep. so we nominated john against carl's nomination and that was one of the things carl held long term against john and initially against me although i yeah. think jenny eventually forgot that i was the one that had nominated john yes. so you know Powell's like an elephant in a way. He yes. doesn't easily forget these things and always takes them extremely
1: personally. Yes, it's a mistake, isn't it? I bit to feel like every time he looked at him, like, like jumping out of his chair and rushing around and bashing him. I think. Yeah. <laughs> this is a profic- professor of
2: literature.
1: <laughs> I, it's a very, very funny. There are all sorts of very funny things uh, that, that happened. At, at the, at the time I think there there were just extraordinary things. Uh, uh, and of
2: course, in the course of all that, hmm. Carl turned his back on Penn because of the flat London flat Schemossel.
1: Yes, that's he? right. That was his point. Well, of he it, felt he had been, yes, viruses. he felt that he had been badly treated by yeah. Penn. Of course, it wasn't at all. He had actually done a, a a very foolish thing. And he had done it without asking. All he needed to do was ask people. And uh, and you know he'd have got the advice about the thing. It was quite obvious what to do. And uh, you know we we'd, uh, you do it s- a small scale to start with, and you and and you reach out. Uh, he just wanted to grab a plum and then have first use of it. <laughs> and uh, you know people knew what he was up to. Uh, and what's more, he said he'd run across that whole thing of Fiona's, uh, which was that she was going to get the Ohiwa Harbour Harbour, uh, thing, which might have been a nice idea, um, although I think that, you know, if we talked about it a bit more, we would have found somewhere a bit more useful and central. There are enough writers' retreats in New Zealand. You can always go away to the Bachelor the Country somewhere or another, uh, but it's very hard to be in the middle (coughs) of town, like the Sargeson flat in the middle of Auckland, near a library, near the university, near people uh, near all the things that you need to be in touch with when you're actually uh, 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 doing a book.
2: To say nothing of a good cappuccino, if that's what you mean.
1: A bloody good cappuccino <laughs> every now and again. My, is my, a, my
2: only yeah. contribution to all that, and I, when I saw how it was going, I said out it, was to say to both Fiona and Loris, it's not London or New Zealand. Yeah. It can be both. Of course. Why on earth, oh. you know, let's take everything that's going. Yeah. But they had set their mind against it because they saw it yep. as being a colonial crime, sort of issue enough.
1: yeah very exactly and it was a very unfortunate thing that uh, that everybody uh, started to work out uh, slogans of,
2: uh, that it, you know if, if, if everybody learned one thing from that of anything else it was <coughs> how counterproductive and wasteful it is for a writer's organization to spill its blood in public that's what was that's what was really, really bad about it. Well,
1: that was one of the essential things that we were going to put the lid back on, those things. And in fact, uh, every, everything worked very well. People got on bloody well with each other. I think we were all very clear-headed about it. <laughs> of course, there were occasions uh, when we didn't. I remember a um, a wonderful uh, party at, uh, at AUP, Christmas party, when uh, Patterson threatened to kill Stephen Stratford. And only a little, uh, this must have gone to his head a bit, because uh, he uh, he threatened me uh, over over a, uh, a drink at the bar, just quietly. Um, uh, no, but it had been just before then. So that's why I must have had a go at Stephen. Uh, and he'd said, uh, I'll kill any bastard who criticizes me. You know that, don't you? And... Uh, <laughs> and i said no, if you're looking at me i'm i would never criticize you you know that i mean it's just too bloody funny to criticize i mean he's beyond criticism you know it's actually in a greater order <laughs> of feeling than mere criticism and uh
2: he's had a role though he's had a role <laughs> oh yeah. You know the fool, the court jester, oh, yes. necessary
1: part of the Shakespearean. So many things that I said have been so accurate and yeah. so on the ball, and yeah. and uh, and so on. It's just that he's a maniac, <laughs> um, <laughs> a paranoid, <laughs> maniac. And you every now and again, you know, he just goes overboard and uh, and very dangerous. But there was a very funny thing when uh, when he said that uh, that he'd kill me um, at one of the branch meetings. And I had it recorded in the minutes. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
2: he's, he's the only person in the organisation that on two occasions <coughs> I had to write letters of apology to. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I went over the top. Yes, <laughs> <Exactly>. And Aleister <laughs> went out the door, and I knew that if I didn't write the letter of apology, you know, there'd be a bullet to for me in the post. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I'd oh, be quite capable of something.
1: Do you, or, do you, uh, d- did you ever see his first book of poems? He's handling an antique gun (laughs) and his author's photograph on that. I always thought that's a terrible warning to us all.
0: I'm Karen Hay and this is the New Zealand Society of Authors Oral History Podcast. We'll be back to the podcast in a moment, but just to remind you that through advocacy, professional development programs, information, competitions, awards and mentorships, advisory and consultancy services, the NZSA is the professional organisation for New Zealand writers to receive fair reward and the right to protect their copyright. As a representative body, the NZSA lobbies for the rights of all writers in New Zealand. Visit authors.org.nz to find out more about membership. After talking with Kevin Island about his time as president of Penn New Zealand, Michael King asked Kevin to think back to his years starting out as a writer, including his association with Frank Sargison.
1: Yes, well, I'd seen Frank around around Takapuna. You know, he was a, a, an identity. But, in fact, when I met him, uh, Maurice Shadbolt came round and took me round there, and I thought it pretty cheeky, really, just go out and knock on a door and say, you know, we've come to see you, a bit like going to the zoo and uh, inspect your living conditions and all the rest of it. We, we did go around there and Frank was marvellously hospitable and didn't uh, think of himself as a zoo exhibit at all, but uh, we'd come around because we were interested in writing and therefore we were to be greeted. Morris Duggan was there and, um, and Keith Sinclair and so on, although Morris Shadbolt denies this, but of course he's got a very uh, defective memory,
2: <laughs>
1: as we all know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, with the medical, <laughs> with the medical. <laughs> he's got it. Yes, that's right, He's got a certificate. <laughs> um, and uh, and then I I kept on going there, and uh, I don't know. I think, you know, in, in a way, uh, Morris's um, distaste, his 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 nasty hatred for Frank, uh, dates almost exactly from that date. And somehow or another, I don't. Think I think that Frank received him as the, gave him the kind of, uh, the hero's welcome that, uh, you know, the young Hemingway deserved. Um, he uh, somehow or another, you know, Frank was so civil and, uh, and civilized, and yet I think it fell short of something that, uh, that Shadbolt expected. I think he expected the laying on of hands or something or another. Uh, it fell short that I was absolutely stunned, surprised, and found uh, this uh, amazing person whom I couldn't recognize from the the character I saw in the street because uh, here he was in his own home territory, uh, not a kind of a shuffling, uh, strange little person walking around with a haversack on his back around the streets of Takapuna, but was actually a dazzling conversationalist and a wonderfully perky uh, uh, person interested in everybody i mean he's uh, he just you know fired questions at you and you know fr- he wanted to know what you were about and you know what you thought and what you read and so on and, uh, and he, he was just interested in other people and um and i think you know perhaps shadbolt wanted to go around there and use him as copy but immediately frank reversed you know the tables and here was somebody had walked into the den and he was going to have him <laughs> and uh, he was going to find out what made him tick and not the other way around. Uh, Frank was very car- crafty, of course, at concealing himself in so many ways.
2: Give me then the sequence that led to your stint in the army hunt.
1: Yes, well then uh, d- uh, Frank said to, to come back and I said, thought, you know, oh, well, I wonder if I should. And, and he said, yes, come, you know, come back next week. So I did. And, uh, and then it became... Um, a, a regular visit, and he'd say, "You know, come back any old time." And I, I had one or two personal problems at the time, and I'd say that it's the only time in my life I've ever been to a psychiatrist. And Frank would patiently, night after night, go through. They were old family problems, and so on. They partly come out in the memoir, and so on. But the, since I've lived them down and I'm not haunted by them any more, you know, it's hard to recollect. But Frank talked me right
2: through these things. That, uh, he knew about those sort of demons himself you know. he knew
1: about the demons you're quite right yeah. he knew about all those black caves yeah. inside yeah. people where you know they w- where you know, you're still frightened of the night
2: yeah. Yeah.
1: and uh, and you know he had that wonderful uh, ability to not to switch lights on and destroy the darkness but but just to get you to be not afraid of these places and, in fact, to use them, uh, you know, you want to know about these things as a writer. You have to know about the places where you can go and switch on the darkness. Yeah. And uh, and that's a very important thing to learn. And, uh, Frank, uh, I, I must have, for several months, I'd just gone around there and Frank just talked. He would sit on one side of the room, I'd sit on the other. We'd roll cigarettes and just make cups of tea, start with books, and then he would get onto the problems, and they were just normal adolescent problems. They were problems of loneliness, wretchedness, uh, family, and basically, I suppose, lovelessness and things like that that are, are very... Uh, and also, you know, they, they come out of that whole thing that spooks you in, in those ages, right through to religion and uh, politics and everything there. Uh, but they're all wrapped up with that intense sense of being that adolescence and later and adolescent (laughs) goes on for a long time in New Zealand and in those days used to go until you were 30 um, uh, that uh, that they suffer from it's an intense self-interest and self it comes from self-examination and in the end you know you you know, the blessed day comes along when you just, uh, you, you don't need to do it anymore. <laughs> In fact, you know, you, you realize why the other bastards haven't grown up properly is that they've stopped uh, n- n- navel-gazing, they've stopped examining every bloody thing they do and expecting to find an answer, an interesting answer. There are but they're a bugger all interesting answers for these things at all. And it's a wonderful thing if someone with <clears throat> the great gifts of compassion and Dazzling intellect, uh, that like Frank, can help you through them. It's just a wonderful thing. It's, uh, it's uh, just a marvelous, wonderful thing. And he did it, of course, by you know all his readings of the Book of the Id and Freud and all the rest of it. So you know, he had a whole mix-up yeah, of uh, nice. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's right, an arsenal of these. These people are a very confusing, one. But uh, but uh, one thing I think that it taught him was compassion, yeah, yeah. and uh, and that was the great thing to come out. Uh, uh, of the best part of that uh, uh, movement of psychiatrists in the early part of the century so of course that was marvelous and uh, at that same time of course i had uh, these wonderful friends whom i met in the queen's ferry and the occidental in vulcan lane vulcan lane was the center of auckland as far as i was concerned well there were two the the other one was in derby street where derby street where uh, the progressive bookshop was and of course that's where you got everything and also, you see, I used to go a lot to Wellington in those days. You know, I had jobs which would only last uh, a few weeks and I'd make enough money and, and then just go out and throw my thumb or catch the train down to Wellington, which was a very cheap overnight uh, train. And so Wellington became a second address. And I also went around the South Island a lot. I did quite a lot of tramping around the South Island and visits down there. I went down with Mike Illingworth once and we had a wonderful escapade down there we went to tobacco picking at Motueka and then we just hitched around the place and had an absolutely idyllic summer great fun
2: coming back though to the, the origins of mate um, yes just a little bit about that
1: origins of mate I decided <coughs> to get a magazine out it was Bob Lowry's idea really he said why don't you know you do it an Auckland little magazine as they were called in those days, literary magazines. Why don't you do a little magazine? I'll, I'll print it. I can do it for 20 quid. And Bob was marvellous, you know. I mean, he, he, his heart was in the right place. God, he was a marvellous guy. It was just a pity that he was an alcoholic and that it was totally bloody useless and, and could never organise I mean, he got that first issue out beautifully. So I sat round, uh, and there was uh, John Yulish and uh, Ross Fraser, and they were both uh interested in doing it but in a way you know it was you know i did the whole thing single-handedly um they were more of a, of an impediment than not because uh uh one you know, you couldn't get any work out of Yellish at all and and uh and ross it was a terribly nice guy gosh he was a really great guy he he wanted to turn it into a kind of a Denton Welchish uh, uh, magazine. Um, you know, it was to be full of purple prose and, uh, and fine writing and finer feelings. And he wanted to get away from the kind of the milk bar feeling of New Zealand writing. <laughs> and uh, and I, I out of the dairies and into the salons, uh, he had a kind of a, a Proustian thing. Well, it was a very good balance. You know, there was uh, Yellowstone on one side uh, 40,000 beers ago uh, um, was his, uh, uh, you know, one great book and, uh, uh which he'd got from, uh, the, he'd written down the stories of Paddy Simcock, um, uh, who was a, a billiards champion and, uh, an extraordinary character about town. But, you know, they're, they're not to be put down for that. It, t- it takes a lot of bloody doing to write down somebody's stories like that and, and get them down. And that's, uh, you know, for, for a first achievement, that showed a terrific lot of promise. And I, I believed at the time that, uh, that, he, that he really would do something, but of course he just uh, became a criminal and, uh, uh, and it was lost. Well, I pushed the thing out and I did it from my address in Tekapuna. Funnily enough, the whole, the whole lot sold out. By this stage, uh, I think Yosh had gone to prison and, <laughs> and Ross, I think, had got a job at the auckland art gallery or was he, he must have yes and he and he'd become even more dilettantish in his approach he, he wrote several little books of poems which i've got you know i i thought of something really more robust it was extraordinary one night after a bob lowry party uh, i stayed with um bob dudding he had a little shack out the back of um of a place I think in Mount Eden. And so it was easy to go, walk across there half drunk from the Lowry party and so on. And we lay there and took turns to vomit, you know, out in the bloody hand basin or the, out the door <laughs> and, so, and the night. And the, we always drank to excess and you knew what had happened, but the, in the excitement of a Lowry party, you know, you'd pick up something and drink it. And oh God, it would turn out to be gin or some awful thing and we always got sick. So uh, we were lying there in the morning. He on his bunk across there, and we were groaning and both saying, "You know, who's going to get up and make the cup of tea and so on?" And um, we did finally. And ent- it's one of those extraordinary conversations <coughs> when uh, Bob said, "It's all right for you, you know. You're going to be a writer." And I said, "Are oh, you? Yeah. What do you mean?" He said. Well, he said, "You've got your life all mapped out." He said, "I, I know that." He said, "You're going to be a poet, and uh, you're going to be published. You're going to be successfully, and uh, you make your name as a, as a writer." He said, "But what about me?" But I said, "Bob, that's very flattering. That's wonderful. You know that you've got me marked down. You know for this kind of success." I said, What well, you can write as well, then? You know, let's both do it for each other. You write too," and he said. No, he said, I know I never will. And I said, well, it was a sheer moment of inspiration. I said, well, I said, I think he's perfectly healthy at the moment, but one day Charlie Brash has got to go. I said, because, you know, he's, he's so much older than us. <laughs> I said, we'll need a replacement for him. I said, uh, why don't he, you think of yourself... He's
2: probably an old man in his 50s. <laughs> yeah, that's right.
1: I said, why don't you think of yourself as the next Charles Brash? Bob said... That's an idea. Well, we were lying there nursing about ten o'clock on there sipping our cups of tea and nursing our hangovers, and uh, I said, um, look, uh, you know, there's mate. I said, you know, I've done the the first issue of mate. I said, why don't you? I said, I'm going to go overseas now. I said, why don't you do the second one? He said, can I be the editor then? And I said, yeah, you be the editor. And so I gave him the twenty pounds I think, and the uh, and whatever uh, manuscripts that people have been sending me, and poems and things, and I handed the whole lot over to him, and I said, "Right, you're the next editor of mate. Bob has been the great editor, and oh. Bob's been absolutely crucial in my life without uh, Bob you know there's no me he's you know he's just been about
2: that Brilliant. all the time that you were living abroad.
1: Oh. all the time that it I was, was living
2: him that was Drawing work out of you
1: and absolutely, of, and yeah. I kept that um, uh, he kept that umbilical um, cord going you know he kept yeah. it there so that he published everything i did and ev- and and including the books yeah. I mean that was an extraordinary act of friendship, yeah. and it meant searching around and finding places you know it meant you know pegasus press and uh, and Caxton press and then a u p and so on and and waiting out a press and here and there you know all sorts of things. Uh, He would know everybody doing things and so he'd put my book in front of them and and so I got published and so when I came back again, of course I had a reputation, I had the whole thing and Bob had done it for me. It was just absolutely brilliant and he published everything I ever sent him. I don't think he ever sent anything back.
0: You've been listening to a June 2000 interview between Kevin Ireland and Michael King on the New Zealand Society of Authors Oral History podcast. If you like this podcast, please take a minute to like and subscribe or leave a review. It helps others find the NZSA. This podcast was produced by Elizabeth kirkby MacLeod for the New Zealand Society of Authors with funding from Creative New Zealand. Noturno by Ottorino Rispeghi, which you are listening to now, is performed by Justin Bird. The audio was digitised and provided by the Alexander Turnbull Library. I'm Karen Hay and this was a New Zealand Society of Authors oral history podcast.